<laughs> hey, welcome, welcome to, to Beyond, Beyond the, the Test, Test Tube, a science, science podcast. podcast. Marc-André Langlois, thank you so much for being there. My co-host can't be here because he's just moved to Japan and he's trying to sort his life out. But I'm so happy that I can talk to you today and that you can explain to me what all these wonderful things that you do <laughs> and uh, the, the, the career that you have so far and the, you know, the advancements in science that you participate in. So I should just introduce you to uh, our listeners. So you're a full professor at the University of Ottawa. You hold a Canadian research chair in molecular virology and intrinsic immunity. You're part of the CanCure Research Consortium, which is a large collaboration of medical doctors and scientists and pharmaceutical partners working <laughs> towards curing HIV, nothing less. You're an international renowned virologist, and you were made part of the top 10 of the McLean's list of most influential people in Canada this year. Congratulations for that. You're also the executive director of COVARNET, which is a short for Coronavirus Variants Rapid Response Network, which we hope we can talk about at length a little bit. So you're a busy person. But, you know, I like to ask my uh, guests before we start where they actually and how they actually got into science, you know, where it, science all started for them. And perhaps, you know, a little bit of your journey where you did your uh, uh, graduate studies and all this. Well, well thanks, uh, Elaine, for having me on your show. It's a true pleasure to be here and to talk to your audience. So for, for the first question, um, you know, when did it all start for me? I, I guess I, I've always been interested uh, in, in science. I've always been a fan of, of Star Trek and science fiction and, and everything uh, related to, uh, to technology. And also these things um, always came to me more easily than others. Um, it came e more easily to me to... to to, to understand science, to carry out science, than, than perhaps uh, writing uh, a dissertation or, or, or a poem. So, so somewhere it, it lies within the, my, my, my own aptitudes. Um, so I'm born in uh, Montreal. I was raised in Montreal. I uh, went to high school in Montreal and CJEP in Montreal. And for university, uh, it was a you know the expected path that I stay in Montreal and um, go to the University of Montreal or McGill. Um, but I, I wanted to do things on my own, and I wanted to uh, move a little bit further away from my family so that I can make my own decisions and take my own path. And I decided to move away from Montreal to Quebec City. So I did my undergrad and, and graduate degrees at Laval University in Quebec City. And um, saying that I was interested in technology and science, I was um, particularly fascinated uh, about uh, certain aspects of biology, uh, most uh, notably uh, immunology. I was always interested in trying to understand, well, what is this immune system? How, how does it work? And 
there are all these uh, pathogens out there trying to infect us and kill us. And how, how do we survive? How do we survive all of this? And, um, you know, how do we overcome disease? And so I, I've always been fascinated by, um, by that aspect of biology. So I did my uh, undergraduate degree in microbiology. Um, and most um, of my elective courses, instead of uh, broadening my, my circle, I took them all in biochemistry. <laughs> so I, I had a very uh, intense undergraduate uh, training in uh, microbiology and uh, biochemistry. And um, as a summer student, I worked in the labs at the hospital, uh, Centre Hospitalier de l'Université Laval, which is uh, the, the research center associated with the main hospital. Uh, I worked in the lab doing human genetics uh, and the sequencing of a certain cancer-causing um, genes, uh, most notably the BRCA2 gene. Uh, so I was in the lab that actually uh, was the first to sequence that, that gene. So I learned a lot about human sequencing the old-fashioned way with gels. Uh, a lot of our students uh, will, will never have uh, done those experiments because uh, we, we do sequencing, uh, DNA sequencing very differently now. But uh, I, I've learned the, the, the true basics in the labs during those, uh, those, uh, those summers where I was yeah. a Sweat and tears, they were. <laughs> <laughs> And then, um, you know, I, I, uh, I registered to do a master's in uh, immunology. And um, I worked uh, in that same research center, but on a different floor. And I, I learned about B cells and T cells and immunology. And towards the, the end of my master's degree, I, I realized that there was an emerging field coming up. And I, I felt that I did not fully understand it and have all the tools. And this field was... Um, of uh, molecular biology and gene sequencing. So when I was finishing my master's degree was when uh, RNAi was starting to be uh, discovered and understood. So RNA interference, which is a major technology for, for down uh, regulating genes. And there were all these technologies coming up that could uh, work in a similar fashion. There was a, uh, you know, oligos that could be used to do that, lentiviral vectors to deliver it. And um, through my training in immunology, I felt, oh, uh, I'd like to learn more about that. So I, I did a, a PhD in, um, uh, in molecular and cellular biology in the human genetics department, where I worked on gene therapies for myotonic dystrophy, which is quite far from immunology, but I, I felt that it gave me um, a broader sense of the field and of, of, of techniques and um, a better appreciation of uh, what is needed to conduct science and broadening one's horizons. So I, I think that was a very positive experience. And through my PhD in, in, in that department, I, was, uh, I traveled to the US, to California, to, at the, to the Beckman Research Institute, um, which had just developed new technologies for RNAi. So nice. um, I've, uh, you know, it allowed me to, to train in a different lab, in, a, in an American lab. And, and that was a very positive experience for, for me to, uh, to do that. And, uh, and then I came back to Quebec City, I finished my PhD. And uh, then I looked for a lab that was really focusing on immunology. Now I felt I had the tools. <laughs> and um, I, looked, uh, I looked towards Europe. I looked towards uh, Cambridge University uh, in the UK. And there was a lab um, that was led by Michael Neuberger, who was a B-cell expert. And um, 
had just discovered uh, a, um, a new protein called um, called Apobec, which is a family member of a right. protein AID, which is activation-induced deaminase. So AID, for all of you doing immunology, um, you, you will have heard that AID is responsible for affinity maturation of antibodies. It's a, it's a mutator protein that allows to increase the uh, affinity of antibodies and also allow class switch um, class switching of antibodies. So Apobec was a family member of, of AID. And when I arrived to the lab, uh, Michael Neuberger said to me, he said, oh, I have this new protein. It works against retroviruses. Are you interested? And I'm like, oh my God, yes, I am. So that was my, my, my postdoctoral project working on Apobex. So Apobex are uh, proteins, uh, part of the uh, intrinsic innate immune system. And they protect us, uh, especially against retroviruses. And um, for, for all of you who have done virology or a little bit of biology, you, you will um, appreciate that retroviruses, when they infect a host, uh, they insert their genetic material in, that, uh, in the genome of that host and it doesn't come out. So it's a permanent modification of the hosts that they infect. So humans and mammals and vertebrates need to protect their genome against retroviruses or else retroviruses would just insert themselves everywhere and cause a catastrophic uh, event in the genome um, by corrupting the, the genetic code. So there are several layers of innate immune defenses and Apobex are part of that. Uh, so, so that is where uh, I started my, my research career. Um, it was really to focus on, on that family of proteins. So is that how you got into retroviruses? kind of leaped into it, this exactly it it, um, it, it just happened uh, naturally uh, I, I had not specifically um, thought about working on retroviruses or HIV um, but through my postdoctoral project where I was learning more about the innate immune system and how it worked against retroviruses and protecting against um, zoonotic transmissions uh, of retroviruses because we all have retroviruses. Uh, humans have them, cats have them, dogs and fish and birds. And why is it that the retroviruses uh, don't cross um, the species barrier uh, very easily? Well, it's because of these proteins. Uh, and so, so this is what really fascinated me and um, was really a, a focus of, of my research then. It's, it, just, it just happened to work on, on a protein that had that sort of um, activity. Cool. So how did it carry on from there? So you did your postdoc, the, or did you do a second postdoc somewhere else? Or did you, from there, then come to the University of Ottawa? Or was there a step in between? So uh, no, I, I came directly from my first postdoc. So my first postdoc, uh, first and only postdoc, um, was for five years. Uh, I started in January uh, 2004. And um, I, I finished that postdoc uh, in February 2009. And um, five years as a postdoc at the institute where I was, was somewhat of a standard. It's, it is um, very challenging to complete um, these, uh, these long complicated projects in, in just a year or two. So I, I stayed there a little bit longer and it was a very positive experience. And towards the end of that postdoc, so you know, in year four, closer to three and a half, that's when you start looking for, for positions. Uh, that's when you, look, you start looking for jobs. And it's a very time-intensive uh, endeavor to look for faculty positions. 
uh, it takes time. Uh, and this is why, you know, a postdoc that takes five years, well, in fact, you know, you've been working three and a half years and you're ready to make the next jump. Um, but then you have to start putting yourself out there and going to conferences and looking for opportunities, contacting universities. And um, so, uh, so that's when I had to make a decision. Do I stay in Europe or come back to, to Canada or North America? And I, I did want to come back. Um, so I did interview in various universities in Canada and uh, the University of Ottawa made a very uh, interesting offer to come back. And you know, the, the fact that you were in Cambridge, um, you were in Cambridge at the time that I was doing my PhD in Manchester. <laughs> and it was in, in, well, in arthritis and inflammation. So maybe we met, <laughs> you know, in like some conferences somewhere, but uh, we obviously didn't know each other. So it's quite funny to think about these things. But in 2004, I was having my second child <laughs> oh. whilst doing my PhD. It's possible, people, but... Um, um, no, that's that's very challenging. That that is a, a tremendous challenge, uh, and you know, well done to have to survive <laughs> that. It, it is it is a, a true challenge. It's actually more common nowadays than it was when I was, you know, having the mm -hmm. children. But uh, I think there's more um, there's a sensitivity towards people want to have children because by the time you're finishing your postdoc. <laughs> you know you're getting old and I was getting old before because I stayed in Sejet for so long before I went to university so so I you know it was anyway we're digressing here so let's talk about you and not me no, but it, 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 it is true um we we do tend to be uh, late most of us late bloomers in terms of starting our families uh, when we're in science uh, mainly because we travel we do postdocs uh, there's a lot of instability in our lives um for a long time um, and let alone finding a partner that can um, travel and move with us, right? That, uh, that, that is also a, a challenge when you are a scientist. And um, I only had my first child when I was 39. Uh, and it's, uh, of course, it's uh, obvious it's, it's a little bit or a lot easier for, for men because uh, it, age is not as much of a, a concern uh, but for female uh, researchers, it, it is a tremendous challenge to to balance the life and and uh, and 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 uh, the work uh, at the same time. So uh, absolutely, yeah. I think there is more sensitivity today. So as a University of Ottawa professor, now your research was mostly focused on HIV, right? So do you yeah, want to explain for, for... a little bit more? Until uh, until 2020, <laughs> yeah. um, my focus was on uh, HIV and retroviruses. So I, I continued with the theme of uh, innate intrinsic innate immunity, uh, studying apobec proteins, which is a family of proteins that have uh, antiretroviral and some of them have antiviral activity. Um, and that was the focus of my lab, understand how they work, uh, how they... Uh, get also counteracted by viral proteins, because of course, if HIV infects, it gets around those barriers to infection. So understand the interplay between these host defenses and the viruses, and also how these, um, these proteins um, prevent zoonotic transmission, so the transmission from one animal species to another. So, so this was the focus of, of my laboratory for um, between 2009 and 2020, so for, for 11 years. Uh, and then the pandemic hit. So, so that's interesting because I think it changed 
a bit for some people, but it changed your life a lot. So when we were in 2019 and we were looking at things go in China, like personally, I was one of those people who were like, yeah, it's just a virus. It's all right. <laughs> no panic, you know. But as you kind of looked at it go, what were you thinking when it first started? Well, it came to our radar mo mostly in, in December 2019. That's where, you know, we were uh, made aware of uh, the uncontrolled spread of a respiratory coronavirus in China for a very, very long time. Um, if you were to ask virologists, wh what will be the source of the next pandemic? Um, for a very long time, virologists would answer an infectious respiratory virus, either influenza or coronaviruses. So coronaviruses were on the radar of virologists for a long time. For oh, some, right. so SARS-1 in 2003, 2004, uh, because of MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, that was uh, coronavirus and extremely deadly. Um, and coronaviruses are a major source of the common cold. So these viruses were on our radar as potential pandemic causing pathogens. So in December of 2019, when we heard, oh, it's a coronavirus, it's a coronavirus similar to SARS-1. This one seems to be spreading much faster than SARS-1. SARS-1 spread was somewhat limited. This one here was just, you know, spreading at an incredible rate. Um, so is that what was going through your mind? Because with SARS-CoV-1, you know, it was deadly. It was really, really uh, a severe disease that, you know, you were at, you had 50% chance virtually, I think, of, you know, dying from this disease, but it didn't spread a lot. And when you heard about SARS-CoV-2, you know, were people thinking, oh my word, this is this is going to be, you know, a nightmare because of SARS-CoV-1. So it, it, it's when we knew it was a coronavirus, but when we heard about the efforts to sequence parts of it, and it was a SARS-like um, right. uh, coronavirus, uh, that's where we, you know, a lot of viruses, oh, they, you know, we're in trouble. Right. Uh, we're in trouble because we know these uh, types of viruses spread, they spread easily, they're respiratory. Um, and, you know, China is very densely populated. Um, the virus has a lot of opportunities to jump from one person to the next. And by, by January, when we realized that the spread was not um, getting under control, uh, I think that's when all the alarm bells started ringing, saying this thing will get out of China and will go around the globe. And, and we were quite sure by January 2020 that that was the case. So you attentively followed this. And were you thinking at that point in your head, uh, uh, I have to get involved? Or were you still kind of looking at it from the sideline of an expert virologist? No, I, I felt that I, I needed to get involved. Um, we're not many virologists at the University of Ottawa, uh, especially you know, basic science virologists. And it felt somewhat uh, of a duty uh, to get involved as well, because we understand virology, molecular biology, and 
there was an opportunity there for us to contribute um, to the research efforts of the pandemic. And one thing that was immediately obvious to me was that if this was indeed a pandemic causing virus and it would spread, uh, the hospital laboratory services would be overwhelmed and would be unable to uh, support research efforts to understand the virus, to, to acquire some knowledge about the virus, uh, because the hospitals would, would be dedicated for patient care. And that's when I um, pivoted our research uh, to develop the basic tests for, for virology, which is PCR-based tests to do the diagnostics, um, RNA extraction, because this is an RNA virus, to set up some protocols. HIV is also an RNA virus, so we had a lot of that technology in the lab. Um, and also what is very, very important when uh, there's a new pathogen that goes around is to develop serology. So basically serological tests to determine um, antibodies against that specific pathogen and possibly cross-reactive antibodies um, from exposure to prior uh, pathogens um, that could contribute to protection and to understand these immune correlates. Um, and therefore, my lab was one of the very first uh, in Canada to develop serological assays uh, for the uh, SARS-CoV-2. And that's not trivial because, you know, there are no kits. So we had to produce the antigens uh, ourselves. Um, so we had to set up for antigen production. And that's not something uh, we used to do for HIV. For HIV is so well characterized, you can just buy all the reagents you need. Yeah. Um, in the case of SARS-CoV-2, we had to do everything from scratch. Right. Um, so we had to get, get hold of the um, uh, expression plasmids, set up uh, you know, cell cultures to express uh, the protein, develop some protein isolation methods for that antigen, purify it and, and use it in, in ELISA's. So we, we did really everything from scratch. And um, I, I was extremely grateful to have had such an amazing research team um, in my lab that, that were keen on contributing and, and jumping in. And but that's um, a difficulty, right? Because you have students who've started their masters or their PhDs. And they're like following a line that, you know, was about HIV and, you know, <laughs> uh, so did, did you convince them to switch their PhD or their graduate studies to another project or how did that happen? Because that's not easy. Um, so the students all had their, their, their projects for sure on, that were on HIV. But as the pandemic hit, it was like, uh, let's, let's make a little pause here. No one knew how long this pandemic would last. Um, so um, they made a pause uh, on their projects to help contribute um, to the efforts on SARS-CoV-2. And um, as the pandemic you know, developed, uh, some students graduated naturally during the pandemic. Um, so they, they left the lab. And, my lab right. is one of the only labs that you know was was still operating at, at high uh, intensity during um, during the pandemic because we were directly contributing to uh, to the serology to the diagnostics and um, some of the more junior students uh, and one student I have to call out is uh, Yannick Galipo, who started as an honor student in my lab as an honor student he is almost single-handedly responsible for having set up 
the serological assays, which is absolutely mind-blowing. That is phenomenal. And um, so through the pandemic, Yannick went from an honor student to a master's student and passage into a PhD, um, all on the coronavirus. And um, so, so this essay started out as a standard laboratory essay in 96 well plates, um, the colorimetric assays. And now this assay has, has evolved into a high throughput, uh, 384 well assay with, uh, with um, uh, robotic uh, liquid handlers to handle the, the volume of serology that we're, we're doing. And to give you an idea, these are you know, thousands of samples a day. Um, we are, we're now working with Statistics Canada. So when you hear that Statistics Canada are, are publishing a seroprevalence survey, um, it's likely that we've done a large part of that, uh, of the analyses. The analysis, for those, yeah. For those and Yannick was absolutely uh, key, uh, like a key architect in those essays. So uh, one always imagines, oh, it's always the postdocs or the research associates contributing. Um, in, in my lab, when the pandemic hit, the graduate students and the, 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 the honor students actually rose to, to the challenge and um, uh, did remarkable things for the, for the pandemic. Um, so, uh, so that's definitely fabulous. Yeah. yeah, I mean, how they can contribute, sometimes they don't even know, but you know, it's always amazing to see uh, the energy that they, the energy that the young, <laughs> these young people have and the will for success as well. It's just amazing. So, so I think you did well to actually harness the, this energy. And I think I remember Yannick from his bachelor's degree, but then. Yeah, he came from biochemistry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, absolutely. So, um, so uh, good on him. That's, you know, that is phenomenal. Um, so when you started all of these things, so you're talking about serology, you're talking about, you know, all sorts of things that you wanted to know about this virus and contribute uh, in order to, the, you know, towards this effort of trying to, combat this virus as it came along is so is it very early on then all these different things you can't really do this in a silo because you kind of need collaborative efforts in order to do all these things no, so, I, yeah. so is that where covarnet is coming into play and how did you meet all the people in order to organize this because there was funds that were being released by the canadian government in order to do research on the virus and contribute to this effort as well so how did it all come together Corona came very late, actually, uh, in the pandemic. Um, in the early days, it was all independent labs conducting the research. Um, everyone, a little bit, as you said, in the silo. However, there was a, a tremendous collaboration between researchers, for example, the expression plasmids for the spike antigen and right. the, the nucleocapsid. Um, you know, we, we didn't synthesize that. Uh, it was a laboratory in New York, um, uh, Mount Sinai, that that, that that produced it and, and shared it with us. Um, a lot, you know, with all the lockdowns, um, there was a, a tremendous challenge getting supplies and getting things synthesized. So uh, there was a huge collaborative effort uh, throughout 2020. The government of Canada put out uh, several calls for funding. And given that we had a head start on the serology and the testing, uh, we were extremely competitive at these grants and we were very successful at these grants and attracted a, a lot of money to carry out large scale 
um, studies. And, and this is where we uh, established a very close collaboration with clinician scientists uh, at the Ottawa Hospital. Um, is to these these collaborations are essential and 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 everyone has you know does their part the clinician scientists work on the side of the protocols the patients the recruitment carrying out the the design of the of the trials and on our side we take care of the laboratory uh, aspects the analysis of the you know design of the assays and the analysis of the data so for 2020 that that that's what was going on um, you know, in our lab at the University of Ottawa, the Ottawa Hospital and other university labs was really to set up these studies of something that we were not really used to is population level studies. Um, in the lab, we usually look at the mechanism of protein interacting with something else. Um, now all of a sudden we have to do population level studies because every human is slightly different. And, and it was obvious that when you were infected with SARS-CoV-2, some people were asymptomatic Yeah. Some, and, and some people died. And it, there was no direct correlation um, of causality. You know, why, why is that? Uh, some very young people would die, young healthy people would die. Yes, of course, the elderly were more predisposed to complications, but uh, there was huge unknown there. So a lot of our studies were population level. So it had to handle large numbers of uh, samples and data. And this was the case throughout 2020. And, Reaching 2021, the government of Canada realized that there needed to be a more uh, cohesive effort towards SARS-CoV-2. And that's where they put out a, a call for proposals for a network. So bringing together all these researchers, as I mentioned, you know, you have the lab researchers, you have the clini clinician scientists, but you have all sorts of other multidisciplinary researchers that are absolutely essential uh, in a pandemic. And this is also something that I've never fully appreciated before the pandemic is uh, the, the, the breadth of, of talent and of, of, of specialties that are required under the same roof um, to be able to conduct this type of research. You need mathematicians, modelers. These are individuals we've never worked with. Um, epidemiologists, um, uh, individuals that are specialized in, in knowledge mobilization, public health, um, uh, computer scientists, data scientists, and on top of that, the wet labs, the systems biology people had to come in. Uh, of course, there are virologists, but the virologists make up a, a only a small part of this network uh, because you need all of those other uh, specialties. So when the government of Canada said, okay, we want a network, uh, we put in a proposal and we, I, I think our proposal, there were two proposals, two competitive pro proposals. And I think our proposal won because I think um, the way we designed the network as being multidisciplinary was really the vision uh, that, um, that uh, was most likely to succeed. Um, and and um, I think it did. And this is how Covernet was, was uh, born. It was born in, you know, officially March 1st, uh, 2021. Right. And the, the role is to really to bring together academics and researchers from basic science, applied science, clinical sciences, government, all under one roof to work towards variants of concern. So the variants of the virus, how the virus evolves. And the, the goal of the network is to provide the best possible evidence to decision makers. Um, and especially Covernet being a federally funded network, um, the network uh, advises the federal government. 
Um, so we bring the data forward. We say, this is what's happening. And then uh, government decision makers will take that data and then make public health decisions based on it. And this is completely new in your life because you know this is never something that you had to do, <laughs> talk to governments and advise them on you know, public health. <laughs> so is this, is this part of your tasks or are you kind of, uh, you know, have uh, certain experts in communicating with the government like science policies or do this bit or do you like to get involved in that area and how how what what do you think how do you think well, this process is yeah. going <laughs> well like it or not that that is my reality um and you know you say is this new for you to advise government and work at, at the policy level the answer is yes but uh, conversely the government has never worked directly with academics in this way either. And um, because of the speed at which the, the pandemic evolves, um, they had to basically cut out the middleman and uh, work directly with the labs doing the research. And this is where Covernet fits in, is that Covernet directly advises a, um, a leadership committee that is chaired by the Deputy Minister of Health, the Federal Deputy Minister of Health. And on this committee, you have other high-ranking decision makers. Um, you have uh, the chief, Canada's chief medical officer, Theresa Tam, that also sits on this, and, and other key individuals that um, will uh, decide on uh, public health policies at the federal level. Um, and they need the, the best possible data immediately from the labs. And this is what Covernet does, is that channels this information directly to them. So my role is to interact with these individuals, and as an academic, uh, basic scientist, um, I, I've, I, I, these were were not um, uh, things that we we we're accustomed to. Uh, it, it's a different protocol, it's a different process. Um, we work directly now with the, the National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg because we we are close partners. Uh, we are close partners with the public health labs that uh, isolate the virus. Uh, because we need to get hold of that virus and bring it into our network and share it with our researchers and study it. So we're establishing collaborations at levels that normally uh, basic research labs uh, don't have access to. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's very interesting and it's a completely different dynamic. Um, and um, it's a very uh, rewarding one as well uh, to, to have this sort of uh, impact and influence. And and it keeps us on our guard as well to ensure that the data that we bring forward is the very, very best uh, actionable data uh, for them to, uh, to, to field all of these complicated decisions of public health uh, during a pandemic. So uh, there's a tremendous responsibility on our side. And, you know, that's, it's difficult to do. So as you become bigger, sometimes the communication, even within, you know, a collaborative, a collaborative network can kind of become distorted or, you know, it kind of becomes more difficult as you grow, get bigger and bigger. So, so you really have to put effort into it and then, and then communicating this science to a non-scientific audience who's interested because obviously, you know, they want to be able to make the best decisions for everyone but at the same time the language barrier can be a little bit you know uh, of a difficulty so so how do you keep this large collaboration really 
informed and working together like a, like different organs of a human you know and then how do you communicate this to the government how difficult is this stage or did you learn now how to communicate with non-scientific politi politicians yeah it, it, it was a tremendous learning experience and, and the example we keep uh, citing in, in, in you know for scientists that, that operated during the the pandemic is uh, we had to build a plane while it was flying. Uh, literally, that is the best um, depiction of what we had to deal with all the time is that, you know, there, were, there was no time to carefully, you know, plan, validate. We had to get things going quickly to, to, to try to provide some evidence. Um, for, for, for the question of communication, and this is something that I thought was very important with Cobarnet, is that there are some Canadian networks um, that have had tremendous, tremendously important roles during the pandemic. Right? Cancogen, so that is the, uh, it's from, uh, it's a sub network from Genome Canada responsible for all the sequencing. There's a COVID-19 immunity task force that is basically a funding agency for everything immunity linked towards the pandemic. And these networks are highly technical and, uh, and cater mostly for scientists. Um, Covarnet, we wanted to do something slightly different. We wanted to cater for the general public. Uh, we wanted to, to distill the scientific information and explain it in clear terms to the public. And we felt that from the beginning of the pandemic, public health messages were not always clear and did not provide a, a sufficient amount of information and detail for the public to understand why these decisions were, were being made. So with Covernet, I wanted to have a media section of the network that would be public facing and public facing and uh, looking at all possible demographics uh, in the population. Um, all uh, minority groups, uh, individuals that may not even speak English or French, um, and provide as clear information as we can to the general public to say, well, you know, this is why, you know, this is what's happening. This is in very clear terms, and this is where it's going, and this is why you should be wearing a mask inside, uh, and it should be an N95 or a KN95. This is why. And this is why you should be getting two vaccines and not just one. And hopefully you're also getting your third booster shot. Uh, and this is why. So, so this is the public facing side of Covernet that I thought was essential. And if you go on, on the website, there are infographics um, by our media team uh, that are- there's, Yeah, there's small animations, videos. There's a, you know, a wealth of information that you can get from the Covernet website for, for public you know, perusal. Exactly. So, so, so that, that was an important component. And, you know, that is not something I had experience with uh, prior to the pandemic. So I think for all of us, um, it, it was a, a learning experience. And I think for all scientists, it's the same thing is that, you know, what defines you as a scientist is not your knowledge, but your, your ability to um, learn new things. That's what makes you a good scientist. Um, and uh, I think during this pandemic, uh, what, what it uh, highlighted are these researchers that were able to quickly absorb new information and uh, understand it 
and uh, be able to produce some uh, high quality uh, data. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, the modelers and mathematicians in our network have never dealt with a respiratory virus and all of a sudden they've done a remarkable job of understanding the virology of it um, so that they can uh, better uh, create better models for, for the propagation of the virus. That's awesome. So, so as a public health effort, Covanet is actually working as a in-between between the researcher and the government for their decision. So that's fantastic, but it's also a huge research effort. And that the research that is under the you know, umbrella of Covanet is really interesting as well. And you have a lot of different projects. So I know that one of the most popular one that we know is about wastewater and surveillance. Uh, perhaps you might want to have a few words about that. And there's been a few um, a few publications from Covanet lately, and one is about the nasal vaccine, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps you want to talk to us about that a little bit, but let's start with the wastewater and the surveillance of the different variants that might come up and, you know, how, how they're spread in the population looking at wastewater. So, um... The University of Ottawa, since the beginning of the pandemic, have been a, a major contributor, a major force in uh, looking at wastewater, and developing technologies so that uh, one could monitor the rise uh, and fall of uh, new variants. Uh, a special call out to uh, Rob Delatola at the University of Ottawa and also Doug Manuel at OHRI that really, um, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're the instigators of, of this. There are also uh, a number of other individuals. I'm thinking of uh, Alex McKenzie and Tyson Grabber um, that also at the University of Ottawa had uh, tremendous contributions early on in developing these technologies for, for wastewater. And what Covarnet did is basically recruit them, bring them on board and, uh, fund them and enable them to advance their technologies um, for the diagnostics of wastewater. And uh, what we've learned is that wastewater is a remarkable, uh, remarkable way, and analyzing wastewater is a remarkable way of predicting the trends of a pa pandemic. And this is not something that was fully appreciated. It, it's been done for a long time before the pandemic, but it's really during the pandemic that you know, these individuals demonstrated how well the wastewater data tracks with what we see in hospitals and hospitalizations and the uptake of cases. And actually it tracks so well that you can actually use it to predict what will happen in the next few days because um, the viruses end up in the wastewater before uh, causing the, the severe disease. So wastewater, tremendous uh, asset to, um, to the pandemic. And that is definitely um, something that uh, we're proud of in Covernet. And is it used all over Canada or is it still a, a pilot that is local to Ottawa? No, it, it, it is a pilot that is in several cities. Right. Why, why is it a pilot is because um, although researchers are coming together to create uh, various wastewater groups, and a national strategy um, to standardize wastewater uh, analyses, um, we're not there yet. Uh, there needs to be sustainable funding for these efforts. 
And now it got the interest of the, the federal government. So the National Microbiology Lab is involved in this, um, in coordinating these efforts across provinces, across cities, um, to be able to track wastewater in different communities. So uh, it is a work in progress, um, but the end goal is to create a, a, a network with standardized methods and also real-time reporting. And that is key, is that you know, data that is not shared uh, is useless data. The data has to be um, shared in near real time with all right. the researchers uh, and uh, used to make uh, important decisions. So, so that, that is really the objective of, of the wastewater is to be able to share this uh, as quickly as possible so that we can make decisions. And can you use this to track the different variants or new variants appearing? So, so the technologies have evolved. It's remarkable what a pandemic can do. Is uh, We went from standard PCR um, to now directly conducting sequencing on wastewater. So, and when you do sequencing on wastewater, there it brings in a different dim dimension is that um, you are no longer just looking for a single pathogen. PCR is always designed with primers and you need to know what you're looking for to, to, to detect it, to amplify it. Yeah. But with sequencing, you sequence everything that's in there and, and um, it allows you to be uh, more pathogen agnostic, meaning that you'll be able to pick up anything that's in there. Um, yes, new variants, you'll see new variants. Um, new variants emerge all the time, but they don't necessarily take off. But by seeing it in the wastewater, you can track them and say, oh, this one's going up, but no, it's stabilizing and collapsing and disappearing. Uh, but this one's going up and it's becoming more and more prevalent. Let's track it. So, so that's what the sequencing does. But it can also help us track influenza, uh, RSV, other pathogens at the same time. So it's, it's a remarkable technology to apply to wastewater um, because you get to see practically everything that's in there. So it could become part of a more general surveillance system for viruses across Canada, you know, just a, a, not, a, a da not a daily thing perhaps, but you know, something that can be used in order to study what's going on before we actually know it's going on. Uh, absolutely, um, you're, you're spot on on that. It will become part of Canada's pandemic preparedness program. That's awesome. Uh, so if we move on now to uh, the nasal vaccine, or perhaps uh, I heard you talk in a, well, not talk, but in the recent Globe and Mail article, you were saying that you want to track new variants in different um, animals, for example, uh, to see whether these will eventually transfer back to humans and perhaps cause problems. So I don't know, maybe you want which one do you want to touch on? <laughs> I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that retroviruses are everywhere. Um, they're in vertebrates, mammals, birds, um, and, and sometimes they can swap, you know, they, they can infect a different species. Coronaviruses, similar. There are different animal species with their own coronaviruses. Uh, some mam mammals have their own coronaviruses, bats have their own coronaviruses, humans have their own coronaviruses. And what happens when these coronaviruses collide? So what happens when you have a human coronavirus infecting an animal that already have their own coronaviruses? And for, for the biologists out there, you know that if you have DNA sequences or RNA sequences that are highly similar, there's a probability of recombination. Um, and 
this is the case of the coronaviruses, is that there is a, um, a, a real tangible concern that some animals will become co-infected with human coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, and their own coronaviruses. These coronaviruses will recombine in manners that could cause um, vaccine resistance. Now, the vaccines deployed in Canada, the mRNA vaccines that are now the, the, the major types of vaccine, and um, Novavax, protein-based vaccine, and even the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine, all target the coronavirus spike. That's a single protein on the surface of the virus. If SARS-CoV-2 recombines with an animal uh, coronavirus that uses, for example, a different entry receptor than, um, than ACE2, um, then you end up with a, a SARS-CoV-2 backbone with a different spike, and which means that all the current vaccines would fail. And um, the immunity that we, we've gained through all of this vaccination would become uh, non-existent, almost practically non-existent, and we would start over all again. So this is something virologists have in mind, we're concerned about, and we're monitoring, is this possibility of recombination in animal reservoirs, spill over into animal reservoirs, and, and spill back into humans. And when these viruses spill back, what do they look like? Did they acquire new features? Um, and, and that is a major, major concern because coronaviruses are, uh, as we often say, endemic to not just humans, but also uh, many, many animal species. <laughs> so um, there's novel information to gain from tracking all coronaviruses. So it's not only SARS-CoV-2 that you want to track in reservoirs of SARS-CoV yeah. type, like it, it, uh, you know, viruses. All coronaviruses, right, yes. Right. Because for SARS-CoV-2, we know that it actually is able to infect a large amount of animals. <laughs> so it seems to be able to actually, so I don't know about this. This is what I've read in passing. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think even dogs and cats can be infected with SARS-CoV-2. Is that correct? That's but right. Did they, <laughs> did they give it back to humans? Well, that's the concern. Uh, and the answer is yes, the, there's evidence of cats, uh, domestic cats, domestic dogs. And um, horses. <laughs> horses, gorillas, hamsters, <laughs> ferrets. Uh, there's deer, there's, uh, there's a large Felines, number. Yeah, felines of all kinds, I think. Yeah. Wasn't there like a leopard that died of... Very <laughs> possible. I don't know. So, so, so exactly. And... and the coronaviruses that are released by these animals can they infect humans, and and, and that is a that that's a major concern. And this is why we we sometimes hear in the news, oh ferrets have been called or hamsters have been called, you know, large colonies have been called. So so a major concern of, of what happens when these thing these viruses recombine in, the, in these. Uh, so so surveillance very important, and continued surveillance in humans is important. So coming back to the wastewater but also in the general population. We want to know what's out there so that we can quickly act on um, the emergence of something new, something problematic that might evade um, vaccine immunity. Um, and, and that is the major concern is anything that would evade a vaccine immunity because the vaccines are doing their work. We're, we're, we're all getting infected with Omicron, but the disease symptoms are relatively mild for most of us. Uh, and that's thanks to vaccines. So 
the pre-pandemic virologist in you and the post-pandemic virologist in you is, you know, do you do you think that we'll do virology slightly different? Well, obviously, you know, it, with concern to health uh, problems because most viruses do not cause health problems for humans generally. But do you think that uh, the way in which we study viruses has been changed because of the fast tracking and the tools we have developed during the pandemic? I mean, even making vaccines has become like a completely new way of doing vaccines, even though they had been studied mRNA vaccines 20 years before the pandemic actually started. It's only when it started that we kind of were desperate and really fast-tracked all of these different ways of doing things. So do you think virology has changed uh, generally or? Um, certainly the field of virology um, has changed and will, will continue to evolve. But I think that the, the most uh, important thing that changed is appreciation for virology. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, everyone out there now knows what a spike is, what a virus is, uh, somewhat what it looks like and what it does. And so I, I think there, there has been a tremendous um, education at the population level uh, of uh, virology, what it is, and an appreciation of uh, <laughs> what all these weirdo virologists have been doing, uh, you know, in their labs is, you know, we're trying to understand how they work. And Part of that appreciation is that um, the speed at which the vaccines were deployed um, are, are no coincidence. Um, the reason why the vaccines were deployed so quickly um, was because of the SARS-CoV-1 epidemic. It wasn't a pandemic, it was the epidemic. Right, right. So during the SARS-CoV-1 uh, epidemic, research was conducted on that virus. And the initial animal trials had indicated that the spike protein of the virus was a safe and effective target to protect against SARS-CoV-1. And then all the research stopped because no one cared about the virus. It, didn't, you know, it disappeared. But that key piece of information saying that spike protein is a good target and a safe one. And this is what all the vaccine companies focused on this time around because we had that knowledge. And, and this is why knowledge in virology, you know, needs to continue in the sense that it prepares us for what comes next. Had we not had that piece of information, um, it's unclear if the vaccine companies would have been able to deploy the vaccines as quickly as they have. Um, and, and, and therefore, this is where, you know, the, the, the general appreciation of virology comes in is that, you know, it's because of this research that was done uh, 15, 18 years ago. Uh, that we were able to uh, produce um, effective vaccines today. So do you know if these technologies now to develop these mRNA vaccines rapidly are being um, developed for other types of viruses that maybe we, I mean, I don't even know if we can make a, an mRNA vaccine against HIV, but... Uh, oh yeah, know. no, it, it, it's, um, it's been a game changer. Um, mRNA vaccines have been around for a long time. Um, they've they've basically been a little bit in the behind the curtains there have been clinical trials on mrna vaccines so so they're you know they're not fully experimental they, they there have been trials in humans they they have been shown to be safe uh the the the, the, the core technology uh, safe and now what we're seeing is the 
the massive effectiveness uh, and the speed at which these vaccines can be made and customized uh, definitely um, you know, make them a, a, a prime tool for attempting to tackle other viruses. So yes, mRNA vaccines are now being designed for HIV. They're being designed right. um, for um, Epstein-Barr that uh, also uh, can affect, infect a lot of us and can potentially also cause um, uh, various other diseases. Um, and, and we can think of uh, various other uh, viruses as well that uh, can be tackled by Hepatitis, uh, influenza, um, and also the, the common cold, the other coronaviruses. Um, you know, it would be nice not to have the common cold going around and RSV. And, and, and uh, mRNA vaccines could be tailored for all of these other uh, viruses now that we see how effective they are. So it's a game changer. mRNA vaccines are an absolute game changer. So I'm coming back to your nasal vaccines now. Is it an mRNA yes. vaccine or how is it? You know? No, so, so this is a, a wonderful collaboration uh, with a professor at the Faculty uh, uh, of Science and Department of Biology, Alison McLean. She's awesome. And, <laughs> and um, what we're doing is it's, it's a protein, it's a subunit vaccine. So what we're doing is we're expressing part of the spike, so the receptor binding domain in plants. And we're purifying that protein and the, uh, the concept here is that SARS-CoV-2 is a respiratory virus, so it gets into your nose and your throat and infects the cells there, and eventually the virus makes its way down into your lungs, and that's where the complications happen. So the idea of a nasal spray vaccine is to uh, induce uh, an immune response at the entry points of the virus, so in your nose and your throat, and the way we want to do that is uh, using uh, simply the protein, uh, no virus, no, v no VLP at this stage, um, but just the protein and, um, and immunize uh, individuals in the airways. Now, the protein alone uh, does not work very well as um, a vaccine. So there are two approaches that need to be considered. One is uh, using an adjuvant to stimulate the immune response, to tell it, oh, this protein is dangerous, build antibodies against it or um, a, um, a different approach, which is called a prime pull approach, uh, where you, most of us have received vaccines and our immune system is already educated to recognize these viral proteins. What you do is that by administrating the, 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 the RBD, the, the receptor binding protein um, in the airways, the immune response recognizes it as foreign and therefore stimulates a mucosal uh, antibody response in the airways. So it works, um, the, our, our nasal spray vaccine works in conjunction with um, the mRNA vaccines. Um, so now we're in mouse trials and um, we're seeing the mice make uh, very potent immune responses to the vaccine. So it's a, it's a very promising vaccine candidate at this stage. Well, that's, that sounds like <clears throat> a fantastic product if it works because perhaps it's something then you can get to at the pharmacist, right? And instead of having fourth dose vaccine and fifth dose vaccine, if you can just go to the pharmacist and get your nasal spray <laughs> booster, then, you know, that facilitates everything, right? Because people in, you know, in theory can inject themselves if they have to, but, uh, you know, having a nasal spray is that much more easier to actually deliver. Oh, I, I'm seeing your, the palm tree uh, in your Zoom background. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm especially thinking of individuals that want to travel going you know, in the plane, airports where there's a lot of people, possibility of transmission of, of the virus. 
um, before traveling, you can just spray each nostril, induce that, that potent uh, mucosal immune response. Now, uh, mucosal immune responses don't last for very long. They, they last for a few weeks, a few months. Right. Um, so it's transient protection. Um, and therefore, just before travel, you might want to top up that booster shot uh, at the entry points of the virus before you travel. And this type of vaccine um, would be designed to limit transmission, which the other vaccine is designed to, to reduce disease severity. This one would be specialized to reduce transmission. Okay. And, okay. and, and that's what we want to, uh, to uh, try to blunt the, the effects of the pandemic. Do you know if there are any other nasal vaccines that I'm knocking about? No, absolutely. McMaster has one that is uh, a, um, a virus-based uh, vaccine, also a nasal spray. University of Toronto has one. And I, um, I don't mean necessarily only for SARS-CoV-2, but for other types of diseases. Yeah, yeah for, uh, for the, the best known nasal spray vaccine was a mist flu for influenza. It had... Um, a uh, average uh, protection. It was a technology that was not fully developed, I think, uh, to, to its full potential, for at least for influenza. But influenza is not coronaviruses. These are two different viruses. So the technology working for one might not work for the other. Um, from preliminary data, we, we have high uh, expectations that it might be a very good technology for coronaviruses. My question stems from the fact that I was slightly concerned about people who have respiratory problems like asthma, whether, you know, having a nasal vaccine was going to be a bit more difficult for them, but I guess we'll see in the future. Exactly. Those are complicated questions, and that's what clinical trials are for. Absolutely, yeah. So what's next? For what's your biggest challenge with Covanet now? Well, the biggest challenge now is to transition the network from being a rapid response to the variants of concern to a network focusing on pandemic preparedness. Given the multidisciplinary nature of the network, you know, we're not all virologists. We don't, you know, very few of us uh, are specializing in SARS-CoV-2. I mean, we all know the virus very well now, but um, in our prior careers, very few of us, you know, were working on that virus uh, or that family of viruses. Um, moving forward, what we want to do is use all the tools that we've developed, the infrastructure we've developed for for Corona for SARS-CoV-2, and um, implement this this infrastructure for pandemic preparedness in the future. So having the modelers there capable of you know modeling the next pandemic and having our our systems biologists and being able to produce antigens uh, very rapidly and and um, develop peptides and and analyze immune responses the serology um, also part of the network that is extremely important is the biobank we need samples of humans uh, serum and plasma and saliva and urine um, to prepare us for the next pandemic because to develop new tools diagnostic tools a key uh, reagent is, is uh, human samples that are pre-pandemic to ensure that you know, what you're, the tests you're developing are specific to the new vi uh, virus or pathogen. And, and um, this was a major challenge during the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic is to access all of these samples that were in various places in the hospital and the university and bring them together and use them to develop new diagnostics. So by having a biobank that is already there, uh, ready to support the next um and it's not effort. trivial you know uh, like no. 
building these biobanks is a logistical <laughs> nightmare. It's, I mean, it, it's the nightmare and the fact that, you know, the devil's in the detail when you're building these biobanks. And I remember in the UK, they built a biobank back when I was, you know, when we were there, basically. And I'm quite surprised that there isn't a biobank that already exists in Canada. But, you know, if there isn't, absolutely, you know, we have to have these biobank fields as quickly as possible, but as, you know, building on perhaps the experience of others and make the best biobank possible as well. I mean, for sure, there are biobanks across Canada, but they were none of them were specifically focused on necessarily infectious disease right. or pandemic preparedness. In our case, it's a biobank that is there to mobilize samples very quickly to researchers that want to do, for example, antibody neutralization assays and 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 challenge new new pathogens to see if there is. Uh, cross-reactive immunity to, to these new viruses. So, so the biobank is an important part of Covarnet and pandemic preparedness. There are other initiatives that are part of the network. Of course, the wastewater network uh, is essential for the surveillance, uh, the biobank we mentioned, and also the, um, uh, the biosafety uh, level three uh, laboratory consortium. So there are BSL-3 laboratories all across Canada. These laboratories are essential to study the live virus. And everyone was doing research on in their own, uh, you know, in their own silo. And what Covernet has done is that they're trying to bring together all these researchers so that the, to create a consortium um, to be able to uh, to share the workload. If ever there's a new pandemic, we can share the workload and communicate with each other. So Covernet is really a network. It's to enable the, the, this rapid response. And this is what we're looking forward to uh, moving forward is, is to make sure that we have in place infrastructure to um, mobilize quickly uh, when the next pandemic comes around. That's awesome. So what does the future look like for you then? Are you, so are you, so, so yeah, so what's your plan for the next five, 10 years perhaps? I'm hoping to, to be on the beach, like in your, your Zoom uh, background. Uh, I'm not on the beach, it's just my Zoom background, by the way. <laughs> um, that that is a question that I've uh, asked myself a few times, and I I, I wasn't able to answer. Um, for sure, the, the the HIV research we are conducting um, has a limited um, span uh, in terms of uh, the contributions we can make. The whole of the HIV field right now, uh, there are some outstanding antiviral drugs that um, prevent transmission um, for those that have never been infected and uh, uh, infection of those that have never been infected and, and, and transmission in those that are infected. So, so the drugs are working extremely well. Whether or not a vaccine is developed for HIV, uh, a vaccine would be desirable, but the drugs are working extremely well. So I think the issue there is more accessibility to these drugs across the world. Right. Uh, global accessibility. Understanding the, the, the virus itself and AIDS, um, there's still a lot to learn. Uh, however, I, I believe that there's now an increased focus on um, more immediate challenges, um, such, such as these pandemic viruses, as we've seen that have devastating effects on human lives and economies. And, and I, I think there, there's a, a prioritization that might be uh, desirable right now um, is to, to look at these viruses more intensely. There was a time where HIV was 
completely out of control and we, we knew nothing about it. Um, so there, there's a limited contribution I feel within within my field of expertise uh, with HIV. There are some projects that I do want to see um, carried through. Uh, they're interesting, they're important for me, and I think they're important for the field. Um, but I think uh, my lab will start to focusing increasingly on um, pandemic viruses, respiratory viruses, based on everything we've done. But it must be a tremendous feeling to feel like what you're doing is making such a huge contribution to, you know, each Canadian's life by just trying to determine, you know, the epidemiology, how to best track these viruses and how to prevent, you know, further um, problems, right? So, so I think that the feeling of, you know, worth, and you know, my time, I might be working 80 hours a week, <laughs> but what I'm doing is important and it does have an impact and it's measurable. It must be quite satisfying in a way. And it must be difficult to go back to, you know, even though the research is amazingly interesting, you know, the, the impact on people is not quite the same, right? So. Oh, for sure. Uh, it, it's, you know, the pandemic positioned uh, my lab in a unique position um, to have direct influence and impact over something, you know, that affects so many people. Um, I, I think this is very rare and unusual. Um, and uh, going back to the research might be a welcome thing as well. Uh, you know, it, uh, <laughs> this high intensity is unsustainable. And yes. um, I, I think it also, it's counterproductive in the sense, I, I don't have time to stop, to think and to write. And um, everything's sure. done up in the air. And I think that is uh, detrimental to the advancement. And going back to a, a, you know, a, a state where I can actually think and read um, might actually be uh, just as valuable. So, uh, so that is something that I, I do welcome. So Marc-André, I hope that in the next couple of years, right, we'll see this COVANet actually become something that is uh, fundamental in the research in Canada. I think that the position it's in now has a position where it might help do research and prevention in a new way, right, of surveillance of viral uh, outcomes as well. So I'm really happy that you took the time to explain this to us, and I hope that the everyone I'm sure actually that everyone will be just as pleased to have heard you talk about these projects with us. Well, it, it was my pleasure, Elaine, to be here with you and to discuss of uh, what happened behind the scenes. Uh, you know, the, the, there's a lot that happens in, in, you know, in the public eye, you know, in the newspapers and all that, but there, there's a tremendous amount of work that goes behind the scenes by a large number of people. Covernet is more than 90 researchers and um, so it's a, it's a massive uh, team effort. Um, this pandemic, uh, you know, required such a team effort. Uh, it was a complicated, uh, very massively complicated situation. And um, so- Which is not over. <laughs> no, it's not over. It's absolutely not over, but we are much better positioned now in April, 2022 with vaccines um, with uh, drugs that are coming out um, and uh, new generations of vaccines. So we are seeing, um, you know, a path forward uh, that is positive right now, even if we are heading into the sixth wave, 
uh, we are heading into the sixth wave with much more knowledge and uh, ability to make certain decisions uh, at the government level and at the personal level. Um, and I, I think that is uh, extremely important. Well, I think the work that you've done is uh, immensely useful. And, you know, I'm really grateful for everyone who's contributed in your network and all over Canada towards this pandemic effort anyway, and all over the world, really. It, it is a huge effort. And I hope that you get your little breath of time where you can <laughs> relax and read a little bit and kind of reflect on what's happened in order to better move forward. So thank you very much, Marc-Andre. My pleasure. Listen to more episodes of Beyond the Test Tube every 15th of every month, either on Google Play or Apple Podcasts, or visit our website on Simplecast Beyond the Test Tube.